turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've been with us for the last few months, you may be thinking, wait a second, we're on 1 Corinthians 11. Are you going to skip some of these difficult passages that I read this week in, in preparation? No, we're not going to skip the, the tough texts. But we've come to a new section in Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthians. And uh, in studying this week, I felt that we really need to orient ourselves to the big picture of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And then we'll be back into the, into the weeds, so to speak, next week. But let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The apostle says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is God's word. Let's take a moment to come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we don't want to take this moment for granted. A moment in which we know by faith and by the assurance of the Holy Spirit that the Creator God, the only omnipotent, holy, unique, all-righteous, all-knowing God, hears our prayer. 
And not just because you know everything and because you know what's going on, but because you're our Father. We just want to rest in that, Father. And we know that because, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but because Christ has earned our place in your family. And more than that, you've brought us together as a body with many parts. All the different parts have different functions, and we all maybe look a little bit different, but we're one body, one temple. Father, you're wise, and we praise you for what you've done in your church. Lord, we know as well that there are members of your body serving in other places outside this room today, and we want to remember those who are serving in the nursery this morning and ministering to uh, the, the young babies and, and, and infants and toddlers and their parents and uh, caring for those kids and showing compassion and, and showing them at an early age before they even know what's going on that the gathering of God's people is a place of welcome and care and compassion and kindness. Think of those serving in children's church this morning and uh, facing all of the joys and challenges that that entails with kids of different developmental stages and abilities and uh, different uh, uh, approaches of learning, and, and uh, yet they're, they're showing kindness to all of them and pointing them towards God's Word. And, and we just want to thank you for their service, Father, and ask that you would bless them with fruitful ministry this morning. Lord, we think of those this morning who are in our body, who are grieving. Uh, I'm not sure who that would apply to, but Father, we know that they're here, they're in our midst, and uh, the anniversary of somebody's passing or uh, some other memory was jogged when they got up this morning and they're hurting, Father, and we hurt with them, and we know that your heart is with them, so we ask that you would be the God of all comfort to those who are dealing with loss today. And Lord, we also rejoice with those who rejoice. I, I can't wait to get through this sermon because we get to experience uh, watching someone be baptized. And uh, Lord, what a joy that is. And so, Father, it's a, it's a wonderful day to be in your presence. Thank you for inviting us to be here today. And we ask that you would open up your truth to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we concluded the Sunday morning worship service here in this room on March 15th, 2020, little did we know that it would be our last time to gather in person for several months. Nowadays, when someone brings up COVID-19, it seems like they're about to say something about politics. But back then, that wasn't what it was about. It was just, we were just trying to figure out what was going on, trying to survive, trying to cope, trying to deal with life in the face of something that we had never faced before. And, and uh, so we were just trying to figure it out as families, as individuals, as a church. One of my first reactions was to sort of brace myself because I knew a lot of Christians would begin to say something like this. It's okay. Church isn't a building. We don't have to be in a building to be the church. The sentiment among many Christians, even Christian pastors, was that 
this was an opportunity for the church to really be the church in the sense that we can be sent out into the world and serve our community and serve our neighbors. And of course, that's true. And I say I braced myself because like so many evangelical cliches, these kind of statements often miss the point. The church isn't a building. Sure, good to remember. It's important that we know that we're sent out into the world by the Lord Jesus Christ to be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus. Sure, fair enough. But the church is a people, a nation, a family. At the time, I wrote a newsletter article entitled, When the Church Can't Be the Church, in recognition of the fact that to be the church, to gather, to get together, is an essential part of what it means to be the church, in hopes that we wouldn't forget that truth. See, the fact is that there's a trend among Christian people today, a trend that I think has probably even affected people in this very room, and that trend is this. It's an understandable but dangerous trend to view the gathering of the local church as optional, unnecessary, unimportant. The tendency to say, I can experience worship as a private experience between me and God, and I don't need other people around to do that. Now, you might not want to admit it to yourself, but maybe that's affected your thinking as well. And if that's the case, I can tell you that you're not alone. Professional ministers like pastors and worship leaders, I've, I've seen a shift in the way that we talk about the church. We've kind of taken it on ourselves to like feel the burden to get people to come to church. People say things like, hey, church is tomorrow at 1045 a.m. We've got some wonderful things planned. Maybe there's going to be a surprise. You never know. So make sure you don't miss it as if to say, The garden variety, everyday, normal, weekly gathering of the people of God is not enough to get you out of bed. Others try to apply a little guilt, a little pressure. You know, Sunday morning church, that's a Saturday night decision. I didn't say it, they said it. (laughs) But really the root cause of all this I think, is that for many Christians, we don't believe that worship is a team sport. We think of it as an individual event. And that if the gathered church can help me in my worship experience between me and God, then great. But if not, that's okay, because gathering with God's people is completely incidental and increasingly unnecessary. And so that that brings us to this next major, major section in Paul's letter to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians. Last week, we reached the conclusion of that third major section having to do with men and women Christians, the saints of God, living in a culture that rejects the truth of God. And in this section, we are faced with this large topic of men and women in gathered worship. Like with everything else that Paul addresses in this letter, he's heard about some things from the Corinthians that are taking place in the church. They've written to him, asking him some questions about various things, other things he found out about through just sort of the rumor mill. And so he takes up these specific issues that the Corinthians are dealing with, not just for them, but as he says in chapter 1, for all who in every place uh, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, he has some big things to say to all of us about this topic of men and women in gathered worship. And as I began to study this this week and and just really dive in, I realized that Paul shares some assumptions about worship with the Corinthians that we modern Christians, in many cases, don't share. 
For example, uh, Paul and the Corinthians, they just, Paul just seems to assume the Corinthians know your identity is wrapped up in your place in a family. Modern people don't think that way. We think our identity is wrapped up in what, what are my deepest desires of my individual heart, right? We're going to see Paul challenge that in the weeks to come. Paul and the Corinthians share the assumption that men and women, this is offensive to many people, men and women in the church and in the home have filled complementary but different roles. And if you read ahead this week, you saw that. It was like a bucket of ice water face, you know, being thrown in your face. And we're going to get into that in the coming weeks. But a third assumption that Paul and the Corinthians share that I wonder if we all share, we all share is that the gathering of God's people is the epitome of new covenant worship. Paul just assumes the Corinthians know this, and they seem to agree. Uh, for example, over and over again in these chapters, Paul is going to use the phrase, when you come together, when you come together. He says it over and over and over again. Not if, when you come together. He just assumes they understand, but I found that this assumption is not shared by modern Christians, which means that as we study these chapters, we're going to find ourselves unable to grasp the significance and the meaning of what Paul is teaching us until we can identify where we've veered away from from the teachings of the Bible so we can course correct and get back on track. In other words, I don't think we can really understand 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 until we stop for a second, tap the brakes, and say, wait a second, why is it that Christians today bring a different set of assumptions to this topic than Paul does in his writings to the Corinthians. And I think there's some very important reasons for that. By the way, it's also not lost on me that we're in a transitional season here as a church, and we've arrived at this portion of Scripture at just the right time. Uh, We've just said goodbye to our associate pastor of discipleship and worship, the one that would remind me it's time to start the service. And so we're left praying and thinking about what's next, and we want to make sure that when we begin to interview candidates for a worship pastor or pastor of worship, that we know a little bit about what worship is. So that's the plan today. Before we plunge into this major section of the letter, we're going to tap the brakes and ask ask ourselves two questions. First of all, why is it that modern Christians don't don't seem to share Paul's assumptions. What, where is the disconnect? And then secondly, how does the Bible as a whole lead us to think about this topic? So with that being said, let's turn our attention to our first question. Why does there seem to be a disconnect between what Paul assumes about gathered worship and what many Christians assume about gathered worship? Here it is in a nutshell, and you're going to have to chew on this for a second. Many Christians think gathering for worship is optional because they view worship as primarily emotional. Let me say that one more time. Many Christians think gathering for worship is optional because they view worship as primarily emotional. In fact, consider how Webster's Dictionary defines worship. This is the first definition in the dictionary. Worship is, quote, the feeling or expression of reverence for a deity. Did you catch that? Worship is the feeling or expression of reverence for a deity. 
For most people, Christians included, worship is primarily a feeling. And this is true, by the way, whether you go to a traditional church or a contemporary church or whatever term you want to use. It doesn't matter which type of church you go to. Many Christians view worship as primarily an emotional thing. We're chasing an emotion. For traditional types, uh, that feeling that we're chasing is often a feeling of nostalgia, like memory. I remember singing in the choir and four-part harmony and Sometimes I do that too, by the way. That's where I, the setting that I grew up in, and my preacher, preacher used to preach from the King James Version of the Bible, and, and we learned and memorized verses in that old uh, Elizabethan English, and I miss that. The church just doesn't feel the same anymore because it's missing those features that we grew up with. What's that feeling? That's nostalgia. Other contemporary types chase a feeling as well. They love the sense of euphoria, a sense of belonging and freedom from inhibition and and the intimacy that kind of gets whipped up in a setting where the lights are dimmed and the music swells. But most people, even Christians, tend to think this way. Worship is primarily emotional. It's essentially a feeling, whether a nostalgic feeling or a euphoric feeling. If I get that feeling, that means I'm worshiping. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. First of all, Jake, aren't there enough scowls in Baptist churches that we don't need to put emotion down? Yes, that's true. Shouldn't we feel something when we're praising the God of the universe who sent his son to die for us? Of course. Jake, aren't you just projecting your own stick-in-the-mud personality on the rest of the church? Yeah, a little bit, probably. Okay, I agree, worship is definitely emotional, and that if we're worshiping, there are going to be feelings involved. And if there aren't feelings involved, especially over a long period of time, then we've got to take stock and and realize maybe there's something wrong in our life. We need to spend some time with the Lord. But what I take issue with is this idea that worship is primarily a matter of feelings. But think about how, how this has led to other consequences in Christian culture. Uh, Because worship is primarily emotional, we've come to think of music as the primary or the only vehicle of worship. Think about how we talk about music. Have you noticed this? We say, okay, church starts at 1045. We worship for about 20 minutes, and then there's a sermon, and then it's over. As if to say, well, The sermon isn't worship. The Lord's Supper, that's not worship. Having a baptism, that's not worship. The music, that's worship. Or we, the the person that leads our music, we call him what? A worship leader, right? And what's the implication? I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I use the same terminology. But if we're not thinking about what we're doing, the implication is that the music, once again, that's the primary vehicle for worship and everything else is just sort of added on. Because worship is primarily uh, emotional, we see music as the primary vehicle for worship. Because worship is primarily emotional to most people, and everybody has a different personality, and different things and different types of music affect different people in different ways, then the job of the church becomes to sort of tailor the worship experience to various preferences among the people. Have you noticed this to be the case? So you can go to the traditional service if that gets you in the mood, or you can go to the contemporary service if that lights your fire, or the jazz service, or the hip-hop service, or whatever it is, because it's really all about whatever brings that feeling to the fore in your heart. 
Because worship is primarily emotional, and since a service of worship is designed to create that emotional reaction, then the individual Christian, this is a major consequence of this, the individual Christian becomes not a contributor, but a consumer of worship. Have you found this to be the case? What's more, the presence or absence of other Christians in the room is ultimately only valuable to us insofar as our mutual presence kind of brings about that sort of worshipy feeling that we're all after. So in other words, if worship is primarily emotional, it's primarily a matter of feelings, then the presence or absence of other people is seen as only worth it if we can all help each other achieve that emotional state. And actually, the presence of other people in the church can be seen as detrimental to that feeling of worship. Every unskilled singer, every weird-looking guy, every woman with too much perfume, every whiny child becomes in the way in our minds if worship is primarily about the feelings. And so in the lives of so many Christians convinced that they must chase the feeling in order to worship and frustrated by how the presence of other people is kind of getting in the way of that, what do we do? We pull back, we withdraw, we say, <clears throat> you know, I'd rather, I, I, I think the gathering of God's people, sometimes it's nice, but, so, but a lot of times it's just unnecessary and actually it can be detrimental to the real worship of God. In fact, I'll take it a little bit step further, okay? I'm going to step on a little bit of toes here, Okay. Uh, But many churches and many people attending these churches, they attend a church where they feel like, yeah, there are people there, but I'm really able to just kind of have my time between me and God because the music's loud enough where I don't hear the guy next to me, the lights are dim enough where I don't see the guy next to me, and so it's just really between me and the Lord. And maybe, since I'm stepping on toes already, I'm going to step on yours. That might be why you've come here. Because you feel like you can be as anonymous as you want to be. And then leave as soon as you want to leave. You know it's true. You see, the average Christian in the United States thinks of worship worship as primarily emotional. And this is the reason why we don't share Paul's assumptions about gathered worship. We kind of see the gathering as something kind of scary and in the way, and we don't like it. Now, the Bible teaches a different way of thinking. And by the way, I would say the same thing to those of you who think that worship is primarily a matter of the intellect. There are Christians like this. If worship is emotion and it leads people to prioritize the music, worship as thinking leads people to prioritize a long theological sermon. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jake, isn't that what you do, kind of? Like, no, that's just because I just ha- I'm long-winded and, and can tend to be boring, okay? It's just, it's just an accident, all right? Uh, but, but there's this idea that, that worship can be uh, just an intellectual thing or an emotional thing, but the Bible doesn't teach any of those things. You say, okay, well, most Christians, they think worship is primarily chasing a feeling. What does the Bible actually teach? Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible portrays gathering as essential, not optional. Why? Because worship, according to the Bible, is primarily relational. Worship, according to the Bible, is primarily relational. It's not primarily emotional. Emotions are involved. It's not primarily intellectual, although the intellect is involved. Worship primarily is relational. 
And in order to unpack what that means, I want to draw your attention to three threads that run through the Bible and appear right here in 1 Corinthians that we've already seen some of them. But first of all, consider how the storyline of Scripture underscores the relational nature of worship. The storyline of Scripture. So think back with me to the very beginning. You remember uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What happens? God creates all things, and he creates human beings. And we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that God made man in his own image and likeness, and he made him male and female. So among other things, one of the things that we learn about the nature of human beings is that we're like God, and one of the ways that we're like God is that there are more than one of us, and we relate to one another. So God wants us to relate to one another. That's one of the ways in which we're like God, and he wants us to relate to one another. That's how he made us to be. And then God put Adam and Eve, the first human beings, he put them in the Garden of Eden, and he said, take care of the garden and keep the garden and cultivate the garden. And what happens? Adam and Eve are so open and transparent to God and to one another that the Bible tells us they are naked and unashamed. In other words, they enjoy direct fellowship with one another and with their God. They're not ashamed of anything. They're just open with each other. And God reveals himself to them. And and he, he actually, we're told, used to walk with them in the morning in the cool of the day. God having fellowship with his human creatures, that's part of who we are. So he reveals himself to them, and what's their response? What's their worship? It's to relate to him and to one another. It's to gather. It's to draw near. And then the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that sin enters the world. Satan comes to Eve, and he tempts her to Uh, doubt the goodness of God and to disobey God's command. Adam follows suit, and, and so sin enters into the world, and then what's the immediate next thing that happens? What does Adam do next? What does he do? He hides, right? Like, here's God coming to walk with Adam and have fellowship with him, and immediately, Adam, knowing that he's a sinner, his immediate first reaction is to withdraw and isolate and hide from God, and walk in shame, and he covers himself, and he isolates himself from God. And as a result of that sin, uh, the, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden sanctuary of God, so their fellowship with God is broken. And then throughout the book of Genesis, especially in the first 11 chapters, their relationship with God breaks further and further apart. Their relationship with one another breaks further and further and further apart. I mean, their, their two sons are fighting, and the older kills the younger. The two first boys born until finally their relationship with God, with one another, and even the earth on which they were living breaks apart. And God sends a global flood of judgment to destroy all of humankind and save just one family. See, what happens is God reveals himself in judgment and holiness and righteousness and mercy, but people who are rebellious against God, their response to God's revelation is to do what? It's not to gather, it's to pull back. It's to scatter, right? But then fast forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of repelling sinners, instead of scattering the unclean, he actually invites them in closer. What does Jesus do in the Gospels? He dines with tax collectors and sinners. He welcomes the love and devotion of a a woman that everybody else rejects. You remember that story? 
He takes our sins in his own body on the cross, and the Holy Spirit begins to bring about new life in those who believe. And the response of the redeemed, it's no longer to scatter. It's no longer to pull back and withdraw. It's no longer to hide ourselves and cover ourselves from God because we're afraid and we don't want to have fellowship with him. The response changes, and and we want to draw near because of what Christ has done. In fact, the, the idea of worship in the New Testament and somewhat in the Old Testament is tied up with words like bow down, bow. Think about when do you bow? When you're in the presence of a king, right? Not when you're absent from the king, Words like draw near, approach. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. So this idea of gathering and, and repaired relationships, and what we're going to find in 1 Corinthians is that as we worship by drawing near, by bowing in the presence of the king, by gathering together, by living in reconciliation to God and to one another, is that our mind, through all of this, our mind is supposed to travel in our imagination to a day when all the things that make us want to scatter away from the presence of God are gone and we are around the throne of God. Jesus says, you're doing, when you celebrate the Lord's table, you're doing this until I come. And we all gather in the new Jerusalem and it's, it's, a, it's a people from every tribe and every language and every tongue and every nation. And all of us, in spite of all of our differences, are gathered around the same throne. And that is going to be a time of worship. It will be emotional, of course. But it's not going to be a time when everybody stands around in this moment of private, inner, emotional ecstasy. No, it's going to be a party, a banquet, a time when we gather in the presence of the angels and the saints who've gone before. And there will no longer be any suspicion or one-upsmanship or any personal ambition. There's not going to be any selfish vying for attention. All are going to join in the presence of I am. And our long exile, scattered to every corner of the globe, hidden, isolated, ashamed, is going to be over, and we will be close to one another. Do you see how the story of Scripture paints a different picture of worship than the one we often think of? Worship is primarily relational. It's a matter of reconciling in Christ to our Heavenly Father. Worship is a team sport. But secondly, uh, consider a, a second thread that appears from the very beginning of Scripture and from the very beginning in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Think about what Paul has already said about the centrality of the temple. Do you remember all the things that Paul has said about the temple? He's writing this letter to the saints. Uh, later on, he's going to talk about how Christ is the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, he calls the church the temple, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. So think about the centrality of the temple in Paul's writings and then also in the entire Bible. Think back to the time of Exodus. Uh, We studied the book of Exodus a couple of years ago. Remember what happens in Exodus? God's people are living in slavery. They're crying out to the Lord, remember your covenant to to our father Abraham. God saves them from slavery. He brings them out uh, of the land of Egypt and from the oppression of Pharaoh. And he brings them out to a, a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gives them the covenant. And he says, you're going to be my special people. You're going to be my treasured possession. And he gives them the demands of the covenant. And then to sort of celebrate the the ratification of that covenant, what happens? Moses ascends the mountain and the elders ascend the mountain with him. Back then, it was a requirement for elders. You had to be able to do some hiking, okay? They ascend the mountain 
And what happens is they share a meal with I am. And they sit there and they dine with God. And then God shows Moses his heavenly throne room. And that pattern becomes the pattern after which the tabernacle is, is, is built. And so what we have in this tent of meeting, the tabernacle, which is later going to be exemplified in the temple, is like a picture of God's throne room. And it's called the tent of meeting, right? And, and so this centrality of God's sanctuary, this place where the holy God actually meets with his people, a place where his name dwells above the mercy seat, is it, like, it's like a symbolic version of, of the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. And, and, and it's a symbol that kind of carries through all the way through the Bible until one day a great high priest is going to enter into the holy place. Not the earthly one, but the heavenly one. And he's going to offer up a pure and holy sacrifice of his own blood. And all of God's people are going to be joined with the king. The veil of the temple is going to be torn. And we're able to enter and worship the king, not through an emotional experience, not through an intellectual experience primarily, but as a moment of reconciliation between us sinners and our holy God because of what Christ has done. And it's that very same temple that captures our attention at the end of the Bible. Think about it. When in the last chapter of the Bible, we're told that this sanctuary-shaped city, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven. And there's actually not going to be a temple because the dwelling place of God is going to be with man. And we're going to have fellowship with God forever. And Paul says in this letter, that temple foreshadowed in the shade of the trees of the Garden of Eden, patterned in the temple of, in the tent of meeting, that temple is one day going to give way to a garden city where both angels and men will draw near to the Ancient of Days and to the Lamb of God. That very temple, that in this age, is you. The writer of the Hebrews says the same thing. Danae read the passage for us. We haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the presence of the angels gathered in festal gathering. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We've come to Jesus Christ. Worship is coming to God. It's a relational concept, not primarily emotional, although it does impact our emotions and certainly our intellect. You are the temple church of the Holy Spirit. You're saints, you're holy vessels Fashion for fellowship with I am. So come and worship. Come and bow down. Draw near in faith. Consider not only the thread of Scripture's storyline, the thread of the centrality of the temple, but thirdly, and I'll ask you to pay attention to this as we move forward in 1 Corinthians, consider the thread of Paul's emphasis on the Lord's table. Paul's emphasis on the Lord's table. I mentioned this last week, I think, but in Baptist churches like ours, the tendency oftentimes is to sort of de-emphasize the importance and the centrality of the table of the Lord. And the reason for that is actually not biblical, it's historical, it's reactionary because many faith traditions sort of celebrate the table in a way that scripture does not warrant. They go beyond what the Bible teaches. And Baptists have reacted against that, rightly so. But in our reaction, we are in danger of missing the centrality of 
the table. See, Paul, as we'll see as we read through 11 through 14, Paul sees the celebration of the Lord's table, this celebration of communion, as sort of the climactic moment in the worship of God's people. It's the moment when we most clearly see that we are partakers of the body of Christ, that we are partakers of the family of God and that we're gathered around his table as one family. This is the moment that Paul wants to emphasize. In fact, many churches recognize this fact and they've moved from quarterly or monthly celebration of the table to weekly celebration of the table for that very reason because they want to emphasize what Paul has emphasized that worship primarily is a relational issue. It's not just about my emotional experience or my intellectual experience. It's about coming and having fellowship with God. To worship is to gather in redeemed reconciled relationship with the one true God. He is a consuming fire, and we ought to be consumed, but because of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, he actually invites us to come to him and to dine with him and enjoy him. See, according to the Bible, and we've really just scratched the surface, we've just kind of skipped along the surface of Scripture. According to the Bible, worship is primarily relational. And for that reason, the gathering of God's people is necessary. It's the epitome, I would say, of worship. Yes, it ignites our affections. Yes, it transforms our thinking. But more than that, the primary response of the redeemed to God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ crucified and risen is to draw near and come to him. For you have not come to what might be touched, to Mount Sinai with all its demands, but by faith to the heavenly Zion. Worship is a team sport. Now, as I've said, we've kind of skipped along the surface of scriptures today, and and next week we'll begin our deep dive into this section of 1 Corinthians, but I think even today we can glean some very specific practical applications from this idea that worship is a team sport. So first of all, let me speak to those of you who are in this room who are not Christians. Uh, I'm not sure who specifically that would be, but you're here, and for whatever reason you've come, and you're not a Christian, in your heart at least, you, you don't have a real relationship with God in Christ. You've not been born again, according to the Scripture. And I hope, first of all, thank you for being here today, and I hope you feel warmed and welcomed. But our aim, and if I may say so, God's aim, is not merely to help you feel better. So often we talk about Christianity or religion or in general as, you know, that made me feel a little bit better or that that helped me feel a little bit better about my life or something like that. And and what you need to understand, according to the Bible, friend, is not, your real need is is not to overcome anxiety or depression as as daunting as those obstacles are. That's not your real deep need. Your real need goes much deeper. Your real need is for somebody to bridge the chasm between you and your God. That's your real need. You have a relational need that's more fundamental, that's more important than your emotional needs or your intellectual needs. It's a relational need that you have. You need somebody to bridge the chasm between you and God. And I'm here to tell you that according to the scripture, God in his love, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his wisdom, has sent someone, the only one who could, to do that very thing. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still the enemies of God, running headlong toward destruction, Christ died for us. And his cross, folks, his cross becomes like that bridge that we, that we can walk across and be with God. And that, that's what God desires from all of us, every single person that he has made. He desires that you would worship him by coming to him in Christ, by believing in Jesus alone, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convincing you even now that you need a change, and I'm telling you the change you need is to say, I'm a sinner, Lord. Forgive me for Jesus' sake. Take me back. Draw me close. Secondly, and we'll see this in the weeks to come as we continue in 1 Corinthians. Christian, if your Christian life is merely an individual event and not a team sport, then, friend, you are not worshiping God in the way that he desires, in the way that he designed. What I mean is you've got to draw near to the temple, the, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ, the gathering of the people of God. This is what God desires from you. This is worship. Some of you stay on the margins. Maybe because something bad happened at a previous church. And I always want to acknowledge that that could be the case. It's the case in many people's lives. And that's fine. Hey, at least you're here. I'm glad you're here. But what I would ask you to recognize is that there's still more healing that needs to take place. Because God's desire for you isn't just to be on the margins. It's for you to be in the middle. It's for you to be a part of what God's doing through his temple, the people of God. By the way, understand that isolating you is one of the chief strategies of our enemy. He is constantly working to get you alone, just like that sheep in the flock is dangerous and vulnerable, in a dangerous spot, in a vulnerable spot when he's isolated from the flock. Satan wants to do the same with you. Don't be tricked into thinking that these people are in the way. They're not in the way. Don't, don't be like the foot that says to the arm, oh, I don't need you. I'm a foot. <laughs> No, the body needs all of the parts of the body. Worship is a team sport. Desire it. Thirdly, let me speak a word of reassurance once again to believers. A word of reassurance to those of you who feel like you're not as good at worship as somebody else. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know that there are people in this room who think, man, so-and-so, they're always so into it. They're always so in tune with what God's doing in the worship service, and I just don't feel like that's my personality. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe you're not an emotionally expressive person, at least not as much as the person a few rows away. Maybe you're not really an intellectual person who ponders the deep theological questions while you're working throughout the week. And what I want to tell you is you don't have to have a different personality in order to worship Christ. Because worshiping isn't better or worse based on what your personality is like. Let me ask you a question. When you came to worship today, did you come to the Father by faith that Jesus' righteousness is the one that brought